You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Dr. Edward Donaldson III, and today I'm here with Reverend Yolanda Norton. We are going to be discussing her work as the founder and establishmentarian of the Beyonce Mass. We'll talk a little bit about womanist theology, the Mass itself, and her further work in the world. Join us as we work together toward a more just and humane world. Hello, friends. I am so glad that you have joined us today. I am here with Reverend Yolanda Norton. She is the founder, and I will let her say more about her role with the Beyonce Mass, but uh, you know her most popularly through her work with the Beyonce Mass, and we are super excited to have her as our guest today. How are you, Reverend Norton? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. Good, good. Yeah, it's so good to be in community and in space with you without our mask and able to see each other and and be present. Yes. Yeah. So let me start off for folks that don't know you. You wear a lot of hats. You are a preacher. You are an activist. You are a theologian. You are a professor. You are so many things as as is like our way of being in the world now, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're just, we have multiple identities all rolled up into one. And that's the beauty of our complexity and simplicity simultaneously. But might I ask you, what does it mean to you to be a theologian? And what do you see as your principal theological contributions? Yeah, that's a good, great question. So I have to say, for all the, those other things that I am, professor, preacher, activist, all of those things are what it means to be a theologian. Yes. I think that going into the academy, there are a lot of people who have this misconception of the discipline. And I think that misconception is born out of a kind of 19th, 20th century malformation of the academy, where in predominantly white, cisgendered, heteronormative males went into the academy and were able to like sequester themselves, cloister themselves in libraries, read ancient texts and write into a vacuum. Yeah. That's an antiquated model of what it means to be a theologian, what it means to be a scholar. In my mind, the exercise of being a theologian, the exercise of being a scholar is to think critically, deeply, and across disciplines about what it means to be in conversation with God about how we are called to live in the world. And in order to answer that question of how we're called to live in the world, we actually have to be in the world. So for me, there was no question about embodied scholarship. There's no question about preaching. There's no question about being an activist because my work, my work with the text in particular, my work with scripture requires that I live in such a way that that the things that I know, the things that I'm learning, the things that I'm becoming are part of how I enter into the world and enter into conversation with other people. That's important. And I I think as we think through not just a hermeneutic of suspicion, but more realistically, a hermeneutic of hunger, that really our 
interrogation and our querying of the text is an interrogation and querying of the world, right? Like we're always putting in conversation the ancient text and the question of the now, the particularity of our socioeconomic, socio-religious, socio-political realities. And what does that ancient text, what might it offer us for how might we respond to the gospel narrative in, in the present moment. So that's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. And it has to be, it has to be discursive. So often what I tell my students, particularly my, my students who live in spaces that have been marginalized, black women, people from the LGBTQ community, people who are immigrants is you have to be informed about what was happening in the ancient world, how they were developing the text based on their try, their attempts to make sense of the cosmos, those are their attempts to make sense of community, their attempts to make sense of God. And you have to be willing to make decisions about how their shaping of the world works for or against you. Mm-hmm. So for so many of us, right, mm-hmm. like as a Black woman, I've always been taught that the text has to speak to me in a prescriptive way. Yeah, This is who I should be. But sometimes you have part of the sacred discourse is to say, this is who they wanted me to be. And no, yeah, this doesn't work for me. Otherwise, we make the text an idol yeah. because we make it bigger than God. And God is able to evolve. God is able to live with us in all of our epistemologies. Yeah, you're reminding me or putting me in remembrance of one of my favorite texts in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had told a particular group of folks that they needed to to stop their cultural practices in order to embrace this ethical monotheism he's trying to move Israel into. And these particular women said, we will not leave off baking cakes to the queen of heaven or pouring out our drink offerings and our libations, because when we did... (laughs) We lacked and we lost and it damaged our community. So we will not do what you're saying is the word of the Lord, but we will do what's in our own mouths. I love that text. And I love it in the King James because it said we will do what is in our mouth to do. <laughs> That's right. And I love that that woman is sass and talk back that they offer as a critique to the prophet. That's right. Which kind of brings me to my question around womanist scholarship. We share a love for womanist scholarship. I am not a womanist scholar, but I'm clearly shaped as a constructive theologian with a liberative lens. I am shaped by the work of my sisters who are womanist scholars. And what does that mean to you to be a womanist? How do you hold that as a theologian? I hold it two ways. Number one, I hold it with an eye towards Stacey Floyd Thomas creates this four-part paradigm for understanding what it means to the womanist ethic. For me, the two most crucial parts of that paradigm are traditional communalism Mm -hmm. and community engagement. That's to say, what it means for me, again, is how do I understand the need for us to place the community above some kind of false notion of rugged individualism? Yeah. How do we understand that my work won't do it and your work won't do it. But if we can put all of these thinkers together, all of these doers together in a particular way, then the community might thrive. And that call to, again, to, to bring the work out into the world. I'll never forget 
So this is probably one of the most formative moments for me in my, my early scholarship. As I was entering the PhD program, I went to a conference and Emily Towns was the keynote. And it was for a group of people who were entering into the PhD program. And her, her challenge to us, her imperative to us, was that we ought not to do this work the way that it had been done before. All the things that I just said to you. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, if she said to all of us, if you, if you go into the academy and you write like they write and you teach like they teach and you do everything the way that it has always been done, despite the fact that for most of us, black, brown, otherwise, most of us, the reason why we're going into the academy is because we saw what was pernicious. Mm. Uh, right about the mm. white supremacy of the academy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we believe that we had something to speak into it if what you do is you go in and you learn how to mimic them in blackface then you are masturbating without ejaculating mm-hmm. you are self-pleasuring without any kind of production or climax to the work. Mm. And so for me, that's what it means to be a woman, a scholar is to disrupt the tradition, to disrupt what people think is appropriate and good and right about scholarship, because those are the things that have killed our people. Yeah. Yeah. I think every real, and maybe this is an overgeneralization, but it might not be every real scholar particularly a black and brown scholar has an Emily Towns moment, right? <laughs> I, I really believe that to be true. I think mine's was at uh, Souls of Fire at uh, Pacific School of Religion the day that Prince died. Mm. And Emily Towns was the keynote and she started her lecture with Purple Rain. And the chapel began to sing along with her and someone slid onto the keyboard. And it was, it was that moment that said, we are seen we are heard, we are, right? It's that shift. And afterwards, uh, we sat down to have conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement. I think we all have those those Emily Towns moments. It it makes us, I think, uh, as a generation, maybe who we are as a people. So it was out of your womanist sensibility, my understanding is that this Beyonce mass kind of materialized. And I have to be really transparent with you and really honest with you. You may not know that I am out of the Pentecostal tradition originally. I call myself a Metacostal because I'm I'm Pentecostal by experience and heritage, but much more metaphysical in my own theological way of being in the world. But because I come from that tradition, I know those people. And I, I have to say, when we first heard of the Beyonce mass, let me tell you, the buzz and the controversy. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine they worshiping (laughs) Beyonce? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought to myself, because I I wasn't familiar with it when I first heard of it, it was still in San Francisco and localized. And and I thought, I'm quite sure this is not a mass to worship Beyonce. Something just doesn't sit well with, you know, I didn't know how to research it, wasn't sure where it was, but I knew all this conversation, something's wrong. <laughs> so help the people today, hope the people, if you will, <laughs> explain about the Beyonce mask. Yeah, you know, I often feel like for people who are so caught up in the controversy based on the name of the mask, I often feel like when they, sh- if they show up, when they show up, they're disappointed 
right? By just how <laughs> traditional of a Christian worship service this is, right? right? This is absolutely born out of my own womanist theology, my own womanist biblical hermeneutic. And as someone who did a, a stint in Pentecostalism, right? So I went from atheist to Pentecostal to Baptist. My lamb. Oh, <laughs> right. you had a journey. I've had a journey. I've uh-huh. had a journey. But what's interesting to me is even in my my like early understandings of particularly Black Christianity, Black folks have often taken up secular music within the church tradition, right? So I remember being in Pentecostal churches as a young adult and them playing, right? You know, your occasional temptation songs, your Michael Jackson song, whatever. Sure. So I will say that the formative experience for me around the Beyonce Mass happened in the first six months of ministry. So I was was 24 years old when I was licensed in the ministry. So to go from being 18 and atheist to 24 and a Baptist preacher is, is a journey, right? And I was licensed to ministry in a Baptist congregation that was not used to licensing women mm-hmm. in the ministry. Mm-hmm. In a part of Maryland, like just outside of D.C., that wasn't used to licensing women into ministry. Sure. And so to be, I mean, you know how this works. There were seven Baptist sister churches, all these little small churches. And so they had a, opportunities to worship together. They rotated things through. And so once there was, you know, they had a young woman, then my job became to do all the things with young women, but the young women didn't know what to do with me. Right. And they never knew what to do with me because they just, they had not seen a black woman in ministry and they definitely hadn't seen a young black woman in ministry. So I was leading a series of conversations with some young black women and they were at a retreat and and we were going to dinner. And when we get on the van, it's silence. Now, these women had been engaged and inquisitive up until this point, but now they're silent and I couldn't make sense of what was happening. And I asked one of the parents, like, what's going on? And she said to me, they don't know what to do with you. Mm -hmm. They know what to do with old black men. Mm -hmm. don't know what to do with this young black woman i said we can't can we turn on music and they she said well they were they had a conversation about that what can we play if we play an old like old gospel music is she going to be offended if we play you know this song is is that too contemporary like what do we do so we so they've decided to sit in silence that's well i don't want to sit in silence so can i play something so i turn on i put in the this ages me a bit. I put in a Beyonce CD. <laughs> <laughs> CD does say something, but we'll leave it alone. Go ahead. <laughs> I put the Beyonce CD in and they erupt. Right now they've got questions. Now they want to explore, right? What does it mean that mm-hmm. we can listen to? It's not even Beyonce. I think it was early Beyonce. So it was like, sure. what does it mean we can listen to Destiny's Child and Beyonce and be Christian? I think that in the way that as scholars, moments, questions, interrogatives pique our interest in ways that we cannot let go. Mm. So when you combine that experience with the fact that when I was in seminary, I took a class with Katie Cannon and Dr. Cannon would say to us, we use novels as a pedagogical tool because for people who are in positions of privilege, they can't see their own white supremacy 
through a documentary or through the news. But when they engage in a willing suspension of disbelief, they're able to also understand the complexities of white supremacy and patriarchy and all of these things. So we read novels. When I was thinking about how to create my own courses, I thought music is a contemporary version, right? Music is also something that allows us to suspend reality in ways that make people open to the possibilities, right? Like people, people can hear something like To Pimp a Butterfly. They can hear Marvin Gaye's What's Going On in ways that if someone were to give a speech and say, what is going on in this country, they would not be able to engage. So I started to think if we were to create a womanist biblical interpretation class where we use music in the same way that Dr. Cannon used novels, what do we do? I thought, who's a Black female singer that everybody knows? And I remembered that moment mm-hmm. as a young minister. And I thought, well, Beyonce, that's, you know, I've been to enough Beyonce concerts. I've been a fan enough to know that you are, regardless of race, regardless of age, right? This is, even if you don't know her discography, people know who she is. Yeah. So we, we can have a conversation about Black female embodiment, Black women's roles in social movements, Black women as mothers, we knew all of that using this one figure. And so I created this course. I actually created it while I was in coursework Mm. and started to develop it in my comprehensive exams. So I created the course. And as I was, the course was evolving, I said to myself, the exercise of centering Black women's experience is something that's new to everyone, including Black women. Mm -hmm. So before we can engage in a womanist hermeneutic, I need my students, most of whom won't be black and won't be female, to practice what it means to center black women as part of God's work in the world. So we're going to do a worship service and we're going to tell black women's story and how black women's story is wrapped up in God talk and God walk as a central focus of the the worship service. But we're not going to use gospel music. We're not going to use hymns. And we're in part not going to do that because I'm not teaching a liturgy class. And so I don't have enough time to unpack for my students the ways that racism and sexism are caught up in the liner notes Mm. of many of these songs. Mm. Right. So let's let a black woman talk for herself. The class is called Beyonce and, and the Hebrew Bible. So let's use Beyonce's music as a storytelling mechanism to talk about black women's realities. So that's what the worship service is. Right. Like we start with a call to worship. The mm-hmm. call to worship is set to music, as call to worships often are in the Black church tradition, right? But what does it look like when that music is Black parade, right, um, in, instead of, you know, a hymn? And so, and for me, the way that my mind works is, of course, Black parade would be a call to worship song, because it's it's often, if we look at the Psalms, mm-hmm. these call to worship songs were about people marching into Zion, their movement, right? And so that's what's happening in Black Parade. So we start with call to worship. We have prayer. We welcome people. We state our intent as a worship service focused on liberation theology, the celebration of Black women, and creating radically inclusive space, right? So saying to people who have often felt ostracized by the church, you're welcome here. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty unapologetic about the fact that the, even we are centering Black women 
period. That's enough. I know that's hard for people. People will often try to say back to me, women of color, BIPOC. No. Yeah. Black women. But I'm also saying our radical welcome is so radical. The only people who are not welcome here are people who would hate or dismiss people who live in any of these marginalized spaces. Our, our welcome is so radical that like most Black women, we draw you in, we don't push you out. But like most Black women, come for me and mine. <laughs> and you get a taste of, of something else, right? Yeah. So we try to state that radical welcome. We then articulate problems in the world because in my mind, you can't, celebrate what God God is doing if you don't name the reality of what we are doing, sure. what humanity is doing. So we let Black women's voices speak. Mm. Um, we often go into a community and we interview the Black women of the community. We let them speak their truths and we bring pieces of that together with, with song to name real problems so that people can hear very truthfully what are the systems that you're creating that these Black women have to live in. Mm-hmm. So we do that. There's a sermon. I preach. There's a response to the word, a passing of the peace. We always do communion. The communion song is the one song that remains the same, flaws and all. Yes. Right? We turn that into a prayer. What does it mean to say to God, you know what? I know I'm a train wreck in the morning. I'm a bitch in the afternoon. <laughs> God, I know I neglect you when I'm working and when I need attention, I nag you. I'm not sure why you love me. And that's why I love you, right? That's our prayer in communion, right? And then after communion, we end communion with the Womanist Lord's Prayer, which I I wrote to go with the first mass. And then we send people out with new hope and hopefully a new vision of of who and what the church can be. It's more than bricks and mortar, and we do all of that within a space, you know, we focus on, like, I, I got tired of looking at white stained glass. So I asked one of my staff members at the time to design these banners that look like stained glass, but with Black women in them. We wash the space in purple light so that you get mm-hmm. that good woman as energy. Mm-hmm. We augment the sound system of whatever church, because for some reason, most churches have horrible sound systems. And we want you to feel the music. Yeah, so we try to be intentional about how to create an integrative, multimedia, interdisciplinary worship experience. It's so powerful. And it it really helps to to name that it is not anything other than what's being done in Black liturgy across the nation, right? Like yours is very particular and, and curated around Black women's experience and the work of Beyonce. But particularly following George Floyd, our prayer song at our in my local congregation was uh, Brown Skin by Angie, Angie Snow. Like for three months, you heard right. it every Sunday because we have always needed to augment the Christian experience that had been thoroughly rinsed by whiteness with black experience. Right. So thank you for telling us and for naming it. And thank you for allowing the controversy to create space for the answer. Tell me about your other work in the world. I I heard you speak recently at an Episcopal church and you talked about some work that you're doing with young women across the globe. And I was just thrilled at 
the prospect of what is emerging. So share with our listeners a little bit about that work. Let me say something about what you just said. And then yes, absolutely. So as you said, what we're doing for me very readily fits into a black church tradition. So because it, it always felt very black church one, I was shocked when it went viral because I thought, huh, what is, what does it mean that this is what's happening when in fact, right. Black churches kind of live in this space. Now we, we're pushing back at even the theologies of black churches because, you know, we have plenty of black churches that are not inclusive, not gender sure. inclusive, not sure. welcoming and affirming. So that's one piece. But it's also the case that like in the white church and the Episcopal tradition in the 90s, there was this movement around Eucharist. Yes. And nobody said a word about the Eucharist, but people got offended at a Beyonce mass. And often I just, I don't respond. When people have whatever, I'm like, please read, please engage. There's plenty of material. There's nothing good about me getting in a debate with you about this. But I do have to name that like your white supremacy and your patriarchy shows when you're okay with the Eucharist, but a Beyonce mask throws you off. Yeah. And that, that white supremacy is not just embodied in white bodies, right? <laughs> it's, it's the internalized racism within black bodies that offer that same level of pushback because right. it's a Beyonce mask. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, so I'll say that piece now about the other work. Yeah. So we kept, so again, I was shocked when this went viral and I was equally shocked because I thought, again, as someone who traffics in ancient texts, you're not used to really getting, you know, the attention of the New York Media. Times. <laughs> right. like, like, yeah, that's a thing. This is new, but I was especially shocked when it didn't go away. Right. Like I thought, even when it hit the news cycle, I thought it'll hit and it'll go away and that'll just be that. I'll go back to my my obscurity. When people kept engaging, right? When we kept getting emails, can you come to New York City? Can you come to Lisbon? Can you come to the Kennedy Center? Can you, right? Like we've been in all of these spaces. I thought once I caught my breath, right? Because for the first couple of years, I just was playing catch up with myself. We were going from place to place. And again, I'm still teaching, I'm still publishing, right? So once I had a minute to breathe, I thought we can't keep going into spaces and then leaving. And I can't in good conscience say to people, because sometimes people would say, well, should I go to this church? Should I go to this school when you leave? I'm not going to say that, right? So I think a lot of institutions who invited us thought that we would co-sign on their institutions. So to grow their, their membership, their attendance, their whatever, I'm not doing that. Because in part, what I know is if you had to invite me there in order to provide some liberative space, you ain't got it. That's right. That's right. That's right. So the question became, how do we create something that's bigger than a, a worship service? Because Worship is wonderful, but for those of us who are theologians, for those of us who are preachers, we know that the whole point of liturgy is that it should lead you into the world differently. It should lead to a different practice. So again, all I can do is start from my epistemology. All I can start from is what it means to be a Black woman. And what I know to be true as a Black woman is that the education system and the church 
have failed black girls and black women. Mm. And one of the ways that we've done that is we failed to teach black girls about ourselves. Right. So we talked about Emily Towns. I remember being like 28 years old and my, my friend and I had gone to Chicago, both of us being seminary trained and we're sitting in a room with a group of my friends who are lawyers and doctors and reporters and we're like, Emily Town says this, and Katie Cannon says this. And they're like, who are these people? Like, mm. stop talking about these people like we know who they are. Wow. And our minds were blown. And it was like, oh, we got set free by engaging these women's work. But who teaches about these women? And so part of what we're doing is we're developing something called the Black Girl Magic Academy. We're going to pilot in four cities this first go round Seattle, San Francisco, Lisbon, Portugal, and Porto, Portugal. And we're going to have developed a curriculum. It's a year-long curriculum. We're going to teach them womanist thought and theology. We're going to teach them Black women's history, Black women's literature. We're going to read with them and engage them on material that they're not going to get in school and they're not going to get in church. And it is a part of our efforts to help them understand what is our one of our key taglines in the Beyonce Mass. You are more than an afterthought of creation, mm. right? You are the thing that God had in mind when she looked out over the world and said, it is good, mm. right? And so we're targeting Black girls from 13 to 17. We want them to learn this material. They're going to be partnered with young Black women who are college students in these particular metropolitan areas. We are going to take them through this year curriculum. We're going to try to resource them around physical fitness, around mental health, around Black women's, like their own family history. We are engaging multiple partnerships and we want them to engage one another from around the world because we need for our young Black girls to know that they're global citizens. Yes. Right. The world is bigger than the patch of land that surrounds them, whether that's their neighborhood, their city, their state or their country. And so the idea is to do some paradigm shifting. So we're going to pilot in four cities, as I said, before the end of the year, pilot in six more cities next year. And we're going to build a global network of black girls who understand themselves more deeply and more fully because we need more positive identity formation spaces for black girls. I love it. And if I remember correctly, and I'm pretty sure that I do, some of the modules will actually be taught in other languages outside of English because of the cities that you're piloting in to normalize a global sense of the African diaspora, right? That's so important to me. And so I just want to celebrate that work in the world. You're so busy. I don't want to take up all of your time. We could just sit and talk. I could sit and dialogue with you forever. But let me ask you a closing question. Absolutely. And this isn't, it's not particular to the mass or to the academy. It really is a question meant to break open the heart and spirit of Reverend Yolanda Norton. What is your vision of a just and humane world? My vision of a just and humane world is one, again, where everyone understands themselves as central to God's story, God's movement in the world. 
and one where we stop pretending like there's not enough. We don't have a scarcity problem Mm. in this society. Mm -hmm. We have a greed problem, right? There's enough food. There's enough housing. There's enough money. There's just also enough narcissism (laughs) where certain people feel more entitled to those resources than others. So a just and humane world is one that understands that even if the God we worship is different or you don't worship a God at all, even if our skin color, our gender, our gender identity, who we love is different, that we are still worthy of being seen as full humans, still worthy of being loved, still worthy of being valued and affirmed and nurtured from womb to grave. That to me is the just and humane society. Wow. Thank you so much. Reverend Norton, before we go, I know that the Beyonce Mass is coming to the Seattle area. And um, for those that don't know, we're here at Seattle University in the School of Theology and Ministry and the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement. Would you tell us when the Beyonce Mass will be here, where it will be, and how we can find out more information? So the Beyonce Mass will be at St. Mark's Episcopal Church, May 6th at 7 p.m., And you do need to register. So there will be tickets. If you look on our website, www.beyoncemass.com and or our Facebook page, uh, which is Facebook. uh, If you just search Beyonce Mass, we will have event links on the page. We're having, we have a couple of masses coming up, but the Seattle Mass is on there. And so you go on there and you click the link to get your tickets There's no cutoff for getting tickets, but you do want to get it soon enough so that there's space for you. And we're looking forward to welcoming people at St. Mark's on on May 6th. And we're really grateful for the community and the coalition of people, including Seattle University and University UCC, some other churches that have really been pivotal in helping us to bring the Beyonce Mass to Seattle. Well, we're looking forward to it. And I can't wait to experience the Beyonce Mass in its full glory with you on the 6th of May. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.